I have a friend who lives in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York, not Brooklyn, Jacksonville. He's covered in tattoos. He has a big scraggly black beard that hangs down to about here. He keeps his hair in a ponytail. And he told me when he meets people, they oftentimes assume that he's an artist or he works in a coffee shop or he owns a microbrewery. But the truth is, he's an Episcopal priest. <laughs> My friend told me once that if the day ever comes when he tells someone what he does as a profession, and they say, oh, that makes sense, you look like an Episcopal priest, he said if that day ever comes, he is done with the ministry, he's out. We all have ideas about how priests are supposed to look. We all have ideas about how Christians are supposed to act. We all have ideas about what it means to fall within the bounds of the church and who is outside the bounds of the church. We're awfully good at placing limits on God's love and God's grace and God's acceptance. And this is nothing new. The church has been in this faulty sort of thinking since at least 2,000 years ago in the passage we read from Acts today. You may remember that the book of Acts begins with Jesus telling the disciples that he will be with them always. And then Jesus ascends into heaven and angels appear. It's almost an incomprehensibly glorious sight but the moment Jesus is gone, the disciples start to do what the church has always done. And they hurry back to Jerusalem, and they go into the upper room, and they shut the doors, and they lock the doors, and in short, they begin to make the rules of the church. We're not given the details of what follows, but we, we know that since Judas was no longer with them, they decided there should be exactly 12 disciples, precisely 12 disciples. And we're not given, as I said, the details, but I imagine they may have formed a discernment committee, maybe a, a nominating or a search committee, a, a transition committee. They may have asked people to take Myers-Briggs inventories. And then finally, they call Matthias to, to replace Judas. The church moved back to the upper room. They made sure their lease was in order. They shut the doors, and they started to make bylaws. Isn't this what we do sometimes? Even when God sends the Holy Spirit upon them like tongues of fire to, to send them out and do the ministry of the church and serve those in need, there is no indication for the full first third of the book of Acts that anyone left the city of Jerusalem. Jesus had told them that they should go from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, but they don't seem to want to leave this one city. We still do this as a church. We're awfully good at defining our borders, at buying property, at building beautiful cathedrals, and then we start to claim our pew and reserve our seat 
And if we're not careful, we can very quickly become very inward-looking. Somehow we miss the fact that every church service ends with a dismissal in which we're told to go. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Go out into the world. Go carry God's love beyond these walls. It's not until the eighth chapter of the book of Acts that a persecution begins in Jerusalem. And inadvertently, this persecution drives the Christians out of Jerusalem. And as they go beyond this one city, there is an explosion of the church in towns and cities and regions and countries beyond. You see, God never intended for the church to remain in one locked upper room or one city or even, frankly, one cathedral. Phyllis Tickle was a faithful Episcopalian who died not too long ago. She wrote a book called The Great Emergence in which she argues that every 500 years, the church goes through what she called a great rummage sale in which everything was shaken up and we have to reconsider a lot of our assumptions. And I think her thesis is right, but I think it's even deeper than that. I think every 500 years, the church is forced to reconcile the fact that God's love is much more expansive than you and I are inclined to think. 2,000 years ago, God came into the world in the person of Jesus, not just for those of us who were good enough, but in the words of Paul, for us who were trapped in sin. God's love was more expansive than we thought. 500 years later, with the collapse of the Roman Empire, which by that point had become deeply entwined and interconnected with the church, we were reminded that God's love is much broader than the bounds and borders of a single country or empire. God's love is more expansive than we think. 500 years later, with the Great Schism as the Eastern Church and the Western Church split, we were reminded that God's love is larger than a group of Christians that claims a single city as its center. God's love is much more expansive than we think. And then 500 years later in the Great Reformation, we were reminded that God's love extends further than just a single denomination. God's love extends much further than we think. Each one of these great rummage sales caused, I'm sure, anxiety and unanswered questions and uncertainty, but each one of these 500-year marks also indicated a new chapter where the church was being called to understand that God's love was broader, and our call is to carry God's love further than we may think. After the church's expulsion from Jerusalem, Peter finds himself in the city of Joppa, 
And there he's praying on a rooftop at noon one day when he suddenly has a vision. He has this vision of this giant sheet being lowered from heaven. And on this sheet are four-legged creatures and reptiles and birds. The commonality between all the creatures on this sheet is that the Hebrew law prohibited these creatures from being eaten. And then Peter hears a voice from heaven that says, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Now this is one of my favorite verses of scripture because I'm afraid my family's becoming a vegetarian and I want to point out that scripture commends the eating of meat. But unfortunately, the voice from heaven replied to Peter, or Peter, excuse me, said back to the voice from heaven, surely not, Lord, for nothing unclean has ever passed my lips. And the voice from heaven said, do not call impure what God has made clean. And three times back and forth, there's this debate between Peter and this voice from heaven, until, until finally, Peter is sort of pulled out of this trance by people down at his front door calling for him. There are three people, and they tell Peter they want to take him to the house of Cornelius. Cornelius was a centurion living in Caesarea. He worked for the Roman military. He was uncircumcised. He was a Gentile. And Peter knew that all that, according to Hebrew law, meant he shouldn't go to this house, he shouldn't eat with this person. But for some reason, Peter followed these three men to the house of Cornelius, and when the doors were opened, he saw that this house was filled to the brim with friends and family of Cornelius who wanted to know about God's love, who wanted to know about Jesus. And in that moment, Peter got it. His vision hadn't really been about food. It was about people. And Peter said, I now know that I should call no person impure or unclean. And Peter told them about Jesus and he saw, that, he saw that the Holy Spirit was already working among these people, and he baptized them. In the church, we often don't like change. We like things to be stable, to be static, to be steady. But God is always calling us to realize that the embrace of his love is broader than you and I are inclined to think. In one of my favorite prayers out of the prayer book, we say, Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that all might come within the reach of your saving embrace. After this visit to this house of Cornelius in Caesarea, Peter goes back to the church in Jerusalem, back to where the church was founded. And the people there gather, and they incredulously ask Peter why he ate with men and women who were uncircumcised, why he broke this law. And Peter 
in, the, in our reading today, recounts everything that happened to him. He tells them about his vision and about his journey to Caesarea and about what he saw among the people in the house of Cornelius. And he told them how he baptized them. And we read that the church in Jerusalem rejoiced. They rejoiced at the breadth of God's love. When I was growing up, every summer, my family would go to my grandmother's house. It wasn't too far of a walk from her house to a, a rural beach. And on this beach, you would see thousands, maybe even tens of thousands, of little hermit crabs. Hermit crabs don't have a very good natural defense, so sort of like squatters, they, they move into shells that other creatures have abandoned. And they live in these other shells as they grow until they reach a point where the structure of their shell is inhibiting their growth. That's what the church has experienced every 500 years. And frankly, that's what we're experiencing today. We are very good at rules and bylaws. We are able to define who a member of the church is. We are able to define what it means to be in attendance in the church. According to the National Episcopal Church, two years ago, if you were watching a service online, you were not technically in attendance. We're able to define what denominations we're in communion with and what we're not. And as we enter this new chapter, we need to realize that we can cast off the structures that are prohibiting our growth. There will be questions we have to wrestle with, questions that I don't have the answer to, but questions I know we shouldn't be afraid to ask. In the gospel passage we heard today, Jesus gave us our marching orders after all. He said, they will know you are my disciples by your love. They will know you are my disciples by your love. The world's changed so much in the past few years. I remember life before personal computers. I remember when I got my first cell phone. I remember not that long ago when, when the word Zoom was a verb, not a noun. But just as 500 years ago with the Reformation, there was the printing press to allow people to more broadly distribute knowledge of God's love. You and I today have a plethora of new channels by which we can share God's grace and God's love with the world. This is not going to be easy, but we're called to cast off this shell. In Northeast Florida, we're probably uniquely aware that we're entering a new chapter, especially for Episcopalians, as just yesterday we elected Charlie Holt, um, a priest who was born in Florida and is coming from Texas to be our new bishop. I don't know the, the details of his priorities or how he sees serving as a shepherd for this diocese, but what I do know is that our call is to more broadly share God's love than we think we should. It's to realize that our conceptions of the limits of God's love 
are far too narrow. And this is not just a, a broad question on a, on a global scale, on a 500-year time span about entering a new chapter. It's not just a question about a new chapter for the Diocese of Florida. This is also a question for each of us, for each of our lives. So as we come to a close, I want to ask you to ponder three questions with me. First, is there any group of people who you struggle to love? Maybe a political organization. Maybe some other group. Second of all, is there any individual who you struggle to love? Maybe someone who abandoned you or lied about you. And third of all, can you commit for at least one week to daily pray for that group, for that individual? Because when we, when we lift our prayers to God, it creates an opportunity for our hearts and our souls to be softened, for us to better realize the breadth and the depth of God's love. After all, what Jesus says is they will know you are my disciples by your love. Love that is broader and deeper and more expansive than any of us could comprehend. Amen.